and you're listening to Square One, a podcast where we interview entrepreneurs, investors, and executives at the cutting edge of business. And I'm your host, Ramin Shah. This week, we dug into the future of banking. When you think of the macroeconomy top-down, banking and financial services are bar none the largest market in the world, constituting just around 20% of GDP. Even though the market size is so large, we've continued to see consolidation and asset aggregation in the largest institutions in the world, and for historically good reason. Banking requires strong compliance, risk, and trust protocol. After we hit the onset of the financial crisis, trust began to erode in many large financial institutions, and we started to see the onset of the challenger bank. Banks focused on the targeted experience and technology set attractive for millennials and Gen Z consumers. This week, I chatted with Imad Akhund, founder and CEO of Mercury Bank. Simply put, Mercury is a bank for startups. In this conversation, we talked about the evolution of banking experience, the landscape of consumer banking, how he thinks about every company seemingly becoming a fintech bank these days, and leading a company in the time of COVID. Welcome, Ahmad. It's a pleasure to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ramin. Yeah, Imad, excited to have you on the show today and talk, you know, all things future of banking. But before we jump in, tell us a little bit more about your background and you know, how it led you to founding Mercury. Yeah, I've been doing startups uh, and doing companies since 2006. So, uh, yeah, just to go even further back, I, I did computer science. Uh, I worked at Bloomberg for a year, uh, kind of decided big companies wasn't for me. So I started my first company in the UK, uh, which is where I grew up. Uh, just like a Yelp for London. Uh, that didn't work out, but I kind of got addicted to the whole tech ecosystem and startups and decided I had to move to San Francisco. Um, so I did my second startup in SF, which is a Y Combinator bag company in 2007. Uh, that eventually did a talent acquisition uh, and I didn't want to work anywhere still. So then I did my third start, which went on from the end of 2008 to when we sold in 2016, it was called HeySap. It was a, uh, eventually a mobile developer tool for uh, maximizing developers maximize how much money they made from ad tech. Uh, and we sold that uh, to our main competitor in 2016. Uh, and I'd been thinking about kind of the idea for Mercury basically since 2013. Um, just, you know, I've always been annoyed by the banks we used and I could see there was a gap in the market and, and in 2017 when you know my earnout was done I kind of went after it. And so what is Mercury right give us the brief of the company. Yeah Mercury is banking for startups uh, basically that that falls into three buckets number one we give you kind of a broad set of financial services um, a checking account a savings account a debit card um, both virtual and physical uh, number two, we will even making that a very seamless experience and very product driven. So you can sign up all online uh, and it's very simple. Most people do that in 10 minutes. Uh, and you get this kind of bank account where a lot of things that are just hard to do at other banks, just like very seamless and easy. You know, you can pay someone with three clicks, you can search your transactions in a kind of free format uh, across like the whole history. Uh, and number three, we want to build tools that really like cater towards uh, startups specifically. Uh, so we have an API which lets them kind of programmatically uh, manipulate that bank account. Uh, we have pretty fine-grained user permissions, so you can have a ops manager that has the ability to do wires but needs approval after ten thousand uh, dollars. All these things that are, yeah, you know, 
still broadly applicable, but more specifically to startups. And we believe that, you know, building a deep experience lets you, lets you not just be a bank, but be a real like tool that you use to run your startup. And so, and so talk about that a little bit more, right? I mean, the, the best businesses to start and industries to attack are, you know, are really where there's, you know, there's a bunch of characteristics, but if I were to distill a couple, you know, there's low NPS, highly fragmented market, and obviously an addressable opportunity that's sizable. Talk about, you alluded to a couple of the things, you know, you, you, you guys have thought of, but talk a little bit more about how, you know, you've thought about the space and what specifically about the banking experience, you know, was so broken in your experience that it motivated you to build the company. Yeah, there's a there's two types of startups really. If you if you reduce it down, number one is these startups that that are like Mercury. That kind of like if you look at a top down GDP, right? There's a, a significant percentage of it's banking, and then it's food, then it's transport, then it's military, then it's healthcare. Uh, and I think across what I just said, it's like you've got to like eighty five percent of GDP or something like that. Um, so when you look at it like that. Uh, and then you zoom into any one of those, actually like a lot of them have a lot of issues, right? Like you talk about low NPS, like in all those categories I named, there's a bunch of things that are used every day by lots of people and they don't like them. Uh, so that's like opportunity, right? Uh, in terms of just creating a better experience and innovating those spaces. Uh, the other type of startups is, is kind of identifying something that's going to blow up and getting there early and when the market doesn't exist, right? The classical kind of two examples of that, like Airbnb or, or Coinbase doing that with Bitcoin. Uh, and at most successful companies, they're, they're very neatly fit into one or, the, one or the other, right? Zoom is, I think, a pretty canonical example of something that like the market already existed, it was already big and they just made something like much better and no one was happy with video conferencing before them. Uh, so I think that's like broadly speaking, like quite a good way to like think of a startup idea. Uh, specifically when it comes to banking, uh, I don't think like, you know, for me, it's almost a foregone conclusion that like the current reality of banking can't continue in the future. Uh, you know, the websites, especially business banking websites, uh, you know, the product just sucks. Like you can't sign up online. You have to either go into a branch and sit there for three hours or you have to find a magic email address and, you know, have some contact and do it like that. And then the product you get is just like abysmal to use. Yeah, you know, you're getting locked out of account all the time. You have to call up to do basic things. Uh, they charge you fees for all of it, right? Like, at, you know, after all of that, they give you all of these kind of non-transparent fees and be off every chance they get. So like, it's just, it's inevitable. And, you know, even in 2017, when I started this, you were seeing some inklings of that in, in the consumer banking space in the US, uh, uh, but even more so in Europe, uh, where these challenger banks were really starting to grow very fast and clearly yeah, becoming a thing. And I think Monzo now is, maybe 10% of all of the UK uses moms or something insane like that. So, uh, and yeah, you know, Monza is probably like the, uh, kind of the, the challenger bank that's had the most time, but I think we were seeing this in the U S and yeah, in 2019 last year, like almost, yeah, everyone was <laughs> thinking it's almost a saturated space in the consumer side, at least. Uh, so I think these trends were like obvious and like, yeah, not obvious, but, uh, well, obvious to me, I, I just really, you know, disliked using the banks we at our previous startup, and and yeah, I was excited to kind of go after this big market. 
a little bit more about, you know, when you think about kind of a product centric or consumer centric mindset, talk a little bit about, you know, behavior shifts or paradigm shifts you see, you know, in building with, you know, more product and customer centric lens. And, and what I mean by that is actually something Imad, you just alluded to, right, which is, you know, in, in the old model or the traditional model, there's a bunch of things that you have to do with a human intermediary, you know, that, that personally, I would love to do candidly without a human intermediary. And I, and I think it's not only the human intermediary part, but it's almost the, the reception of, of that. So, you know, when you call up a bank, for example, in the old model, you know, folks actually look at that as a positive. They look at it as an opportunity to build a relationship. Whereas I think, you know, in a new model, the way most folks, you know, our age would see it is, you know, the preference is candidly not to call and have proactive value that just gets provided to us natively through the product. That's, that's kind of how we're trained you know, to interact with most of the high NPS tech products that we use. So talk a little bit about kind of as you, as you guys have built the company, you know, what are some of those behavior shifts or paradigm shifts that might not be as obvious, you know, have you observed? Yeah. I mean, there's been this kind of prolonged consumerization of enterprise software, right? Where we started, if you look back, let's say 2013, everything you used as a business kind of sucked, right? Communication sucked, like yet, you know, there was no Slack. Uh, payroll sucked, there was no Gusto or Ripple, one of these kind of modern payroll providers. Uh, a lot of these expense tools weren't good. So what's happened though is as people have used kind of better and better consumer products, whether it's Facebook or um, Gmail or whatever, uh, yeah, the, what, they're willing, what they're willing to put up with on enterprises like decreased. Uh, and at the same time, yeah, SaaS and cloud and all of these things have just enabled more competition in, uh, in the enterprise software space. So I think there's a long running trend of consumerization of anything to do in the business side where all the things you expect on the consumer side, which is like self-service, ease of use, you know, intuitiveness, all of these things are going to be part of, the, of what the business experience is. And banking is always a bit of a laggard because of this kind of regulatory monopoly that banks banks have. Uh, and that's a trend I think is important. Uh, I think another part of this is important is how you kind of think about customer service. So, you know, it's really how banks and most companies think about customer service is uh, uh, as a cost center uh, where, you know, you're like, oh, I have to have, I have to do customer service. So I'm going to have this like kind of great experience where I'm going to have this automated kind of system to try to try to catch as many people out before they get to like a real operator. And then the operator is going to be, you know, some badly trained person in the low cost, cost area. Uh, and that's just like how they think about it, right? Like when you're thinking about something in a cost center, it's all about how you reduce that cost. Uh, when I think about what is good customer service and what we want to do at Mercury, we don't want to think about it. And we don't think about it as a cost center. What it is, is a, opportunity to learn about your product. So, uh, yeah, if someone is calling in, that means something went bad with your product because frankly, no one should have to call in, right? If they can't, if they do something on the, uh, on the website or on the mobile app, that's when they call in. And if they're doing that, that means you failed it in the product. And sometimes it's bugs. And sometimes in banking, like people just just want to talk to someone, but often it's like something you can improve with your product. And that's what we try to do. And all of our um, accounts people and support people are, are really, uh, you know, have the responsibility to, to lead product innovations. Uh, and yeah, and that also actually ends up with you having a much more human 
a customer support experience where when someone contacts us, you know, they, they're speaking to someone who's like understands the product better than I do probably. And, and gets, you know, they get a real, real explanation for why, what they're confused about or what's going wrong. And I think that, I think people really appreciate that. Uh, and it wasn't something that we set out to go like, we're going to build the best customer support and like, you know, our customer support is going to sell Mercury. Uh, but just thinking about it in terms of it being a product center and it, it driving, uh, it's enabling people to, to really like uh, have a sense of the product. I think that's important. And the only way you can do that with customer service is by having a product that's really good, right? Like if your product, if for basic things you need to do on the product, you have to call in or things go wrong all the time, then you have have a cheap cost center because you just receive way too many calls, right? But if your product is really good and people are only calling in when they're really stuck on thing, then, then you can actually like have a next better customer service as well. So how do you think of the role? What is the, what does a banker mean, you know, in a mercury world to you? Right. And, and what I mean by that is what are the points in the customer journey where you see, you know, in a, in a new type of model, you, you certainly eliminate humans from, you know, certain aspects of the customer journey. And that, that typically speaks to, you know, either a cost center mindset, like you were just talking about, you know, an efficiency, so on and so forth. Uh, but I imagine, you know, as you think about, you know, the business, especially at scale, um, this idea or concept of kind of the role of a banker, you know, is different. What what is what does a banker look like in a mercury world? I don't, you know, I don't really get a banker. Like, I don't want to ever speak to a banker. Yeah. Uh, you know, and they they really try to be spoken to. I just, I don't think that's. I don't think we are ever going to have bankers per se. I think what we will do is, you know, let's be helpful to people, right? So. Yeah, I I try to be helpful to entrepreneurs, and I try to you know help them succeed. And I think there's there's events we run and other things that help them. And I think that's useful, right? Like that's just directly providing value. And then the other side of that is okay. If someone has a more advanced product use case, like they want to learn about our API more, they just want to have a conversation about like you know what is what is our differentiator, and they want to learn about it. Like that's interesting, right? Like that's a, that's a product conversation, and you know often slightly bigger companies and startups do do need to have like a more kind of detailed understanding of the product before they commit to it and i completely get that and you know we have we'll have a bd organization to kind of fuel that uh whether we have these kind of traditional banker roles i just i don't like it and i don't get it like once we get into lending i think there's automated ways of doing that where you know, frankly, a lot of these lending decisions that banks made don't need to need to have a human involved. And there's ways of, you know, and there's other people that have innovated around this. Uh, that's where, yeah, that's where often people think about a banker, right? Like it's like, oh, this guy's going to like give me a loan and we can have a relationship. I think that's not the future. The future is uh, let's make an objective decision on this company based on the statistics. And, you know, maybe it needs to be involved at some point just to make sure there isn't like fraud going on or something like that. Uh, but yeah, I don't know if, if there's a future where like there's banker roles or relationship manager roles at Mercury. How do you think that's that's interesting? And I'm I'm curious how you extend that kind of same perspective to um, physical ba- branches, you know, versus not having physical branches. So you know, Mercury is obviously it's it's fully you know it's a fully online experience today, from from my understanding. Um, I'm curious on your perspective on you know, whether physical, uh, whether physical or kind of in-person is a part of the strategy. And, and if so, you know, especially in a post-COVID era, 
you know, it has to certainly provide some sort of significant value or experience to be viable, right? I think the the normalized, you know, come in for a transaction, A, doesn't fit the Mercury ethos, but certainly wouldn't fit in a post-COVID world either. How do you think about, how do you think about that element? Yeah. I mean, one part of Mercury is, is kind of like Amazon-esque in the sense that, you know, we want to suppress our costs as much as possible. And that allows us to do two things. Number one, we're fully open to anyone without a minimum fee or anything like that. So if you look at banks, they they put up all of these, what they consider kind of poor customers, whether it's you know, businesses with smaller deposits or, or, or consumers with smaller deposits. The reason they do that, it just, they have a re- relatively high, large base cost, right? They have a branch, they have a person at the branch. Every time you go into the branch, it probably costs them $5 or maybe $10, right? Uh, and all of these kind of physical things lead to uh, high base cost, which then leads to you being either having uh, fees that are not good or being restrictive to like what types of customers you want to serve. So I think on a yeah, super kind of, uh, broad level, uh, having that physical space is this cost that like, I don't think you need anymore. And I don't think we'd want to have, uh, there is potentially two ways that we might end up having physical space. And, uh, one we've explored a bit already, which is, uh, it potentially there's kind of, again, coming back to this previous point where we can provide value to our customers. And we have this like little tea room space, which is part of this kind of co-working space that one of my friends run and we can, we've run a few events there obviously the d- days of events is <laughs> over right now but presumably they'll come back uh, so i think there's like yeah you know, some sort of thing there where you know we it's a networking space we provide value to people and ourselves to in using it uh, and then the second part which is like the other extreme of that is potentially we'd have like really sick atms where you know it's a full atm experience and you can do what you can in a normal atm but like potentially you can you know do a lot more things with your mercury bank account uh, there's absolutely no plans for that anytime soon, but that would be something that I could like potentially get behind like a fully, fully kind of autonomous uh, experience. That's like uh, still lives up to, you know, what Mercury does, but it's like in the real world. But, but honestly, I just don't think that's necessary. Right. I think your mobile phone is your, your is your ATM and you should be able to just do most things. on that. What are the products you look at? Um, when at when at scale, you know, are the experiences you can generate at scale that get you really excited about Mercury? Yeah, that's a good question. I think one of the things that I was excited about when I was thinking about Mercury is a lot of the, I think the first part is really hard, right? Getting from like zero to one, like it takes a long time to build it. You have to deal with like under the regulation side and then you launch it and, you know, building trust and all of these things is hard. Uh, but once you've done that, like it's a pretty fun place to be, to be a bank. It's like a, a central part of what your business needs. Uh, and there's a lot of things that you can kind of expand. And like, sometimes I describe it as like, you know, the Google for business banking. And I, I don't tell to be honest, but, but the idea is, you know, you start with banking, but you know, then you build an API, uh, then you can add kind of analytics tool to help you understand what's happening with your finances. And yeah, there's, there's a ton of things that you can keep building to really, yeah, the finan- if you think about it, like there's this financial stack that like, a company uses and you know, Mercury's definitely not going to do all of that, but being a bank just enables us to be at the center of that. And like, you know, even for things that we don't do, uh, we can potentially integrate and like make it a seamless experience for people. Uh, so yeah, I'm really excited about kind of all these things we're, we're building and we have a couple of like pretty big projects coming out soon. Uh, 
and I think we can like keep keep kind of adding those things and like adding more value for our customers. And how do you think of the building blocks required to get to that end state? So there's there's a pretty fundamental perspective. You know, investors often have, but I think founders of high scale companies have have as well, which is you know, when looking at startups, um, there's, there's two ways to think about it. One, one school of thought is, you know, build, you know, if you have an end vision of building, let's say D, right, build A to B, A to B, to B to C, you know, C to D. There's another, you know, perspective of the world, which is, you know, don't build kind of A to B to C to D, just go outright and build, you know, the end piece, because by the time you, you know, strive to build that end piece through layers, you know, someone else is going to build it. And again, I think it depends, you know, I like the way you articulated it earlier in our conversation. There's, there's different kinds of startups, right? And I think it depends if you're building a business, you know, where you're capturing a new atomic unit of value, for example, a business like Carta, right? It's important to build, you know, that A or B, the fundamental building block, so you can actually grab, you know, that much larger vision. In, in other examples or so, you know, oftentimes I think you have to go immediately for that end vision, you know, to avoid copycat type businesses. How do you, as you're thinking about, you know, building towards an end state, a much broader end state and not scale end state, how do you think about kind of the building blocks and the mechanics of the business? Yeah, I think Carter is kind of a good example. I think it's important, like when you do have an, I mean, I don't think Carter would have thought about cap table management as an intermediate state. Like that was a core product. And uh, Mm. I think it's the same with Mercury. Like there's no way like, you know, depository bank account is immediate intermediate state like it's a core product that people do need uh and i think the way to think about is like that core product has to be valuable in the sense that it should have good unit economics it should make money it should be a fairly big business by itself and then once you built that core product if there's ways of like you know leveraging that position to build like additional products that you know your customers want to entrench you better all of those kind of things that kind of builds you into this like you know real like behemoth right like if you look at Carter now they do like uh 409a valuations and they they you know getting into kind of the ventures fun side of things and doing capital calls and all this stuff but it's all built around this kind of base that they had around cap table management and i think it's similar for us like anything we think about uh and broadly speaking we think about like what are the additional financial tools we can add uh, and what are the additional businesses tools we can add like well, I should have said financial services and then business tools. Uh, and as we add those, those are all like additive to like the overall experience. Uh, but the, yeah, the core of it being a checking account and a debit card, like those are always going to be kind of the initial entry points and the, and a core part of that experience. One of the things that's been really interesting to watch, you know, from afar, from outside, you know, FinTech especially is just the convergence of banking. And I'm, I'm curious, Iman, to get your thoughts on this, you know, in, in fintech, I think it's in vogue, right, to say that, you know, the ultimate end state is everyone's becoming a bank. But you, even outside of fintech, you see this, you see this type of convergence of, of banking. I, I kind of think about it in three layers. So one is, if I think from the Mercury perspective, you know, layer one is kind of direct competitors, right, to other, you know, other challenger banks, startup banks, et cetera, um, or even, you know, incumbent banks that are focused on, on the same demographic. The second becomes the second layer becomes you know companies more broadly in a in a different part of the fintech stack right whether it's payments companies lending companies etc um, that have an element of banking or converge to banking and then the third layer becomes you know just more broadly digital first um, incumbents not banking incumbents but companies like you know an Amazon a Facebook an Alibaba etc that end up using consumer data to, you know to, to to loan out to small businesses. 
when you think of this idea of the convergence of banking, and you might disagree with the premise entirely, but when, when you think of the idea, uh, and especially you know, building a bank itself, how do you think about the landscape and how Mercury fits into it? Yeah, I think on a, you know, like if you look at the consumer space, right, there's, there's a lot of people who kind of tacked on a bank account to the existing services, uh, whether it's like Robinhood or Wealthfront, um, mm-hmm. uh, SoFi did it. Uh, I, I still think of them as the first thing they did, right? Like I still think of Robinhood as a trading platform platform and Wealthfront as a passive kind of investing platform. Uh, and I think, I don't know whether they will be successful at this change. Like I think they're very good at the first thing they did. And that's what, yeah, I think people want a great bank account when they want a bank account and they want a great kind of trading platform and they want a trading platform. And I'm not sure that that bubble actually makes sense. Uh, and I know why they do it, but I don't know if it's actually like from a consumer's perspective, actually like being successful. And maybe there's a good counterexample to it, but at a, at a, I guess like at an abstract level, I think like, yeah, these kind of vertical financial services, I think were interesting. Like they provided a lot of value in what they do. And I think their brand is like attached to that. And this kind of pivot into also I'm a bank is, I don't know if that's going to be successful. Um, there's these two, well, there's three kind of high level like things that made it harder, uh, even more so in business, but I think in consumer as well. Number one, there's a lot of features involved in like doing a good, yeah, like in the, if you take the consumer space, you kind of want Zelle and you want, uh, you probably want to integrate a credit card. And there's all of these other things that like, you know, when you, when it's a side business and you do a kind of like a mini MVP version of like a bank account and attach it to something, I don't think it gives you this kind of complete experience that most consumers will want. Uh, and I think that's even more so in businesses, right? Like there's just so many features that Mercury has, whether it's domestic wires or you check deposit or uh, kind of this user permission system, et cetera. Like there's just a lot of features. So if you just tack on like a checking account with the debit card on onto an existing service, I just don't think that really gets you there, Right. Uh, so that's one thing. Another thing is this kind of customer service perspective. Uh, yeah, a lot of there's these kind of two hidden costs slash hidden kind of optimizations that are not obvious when you look at banking externally. Number one is customer service, and number two is fraud. Uh, so on the customer service side, you know, if it's just a tacked on experience, and you, yeah, you, know, you call them up, and you know, they're not they're not really going to have like this kind of sick customer service experience where you're like, okay, I, I really enjoyed that. They, they really got me as a customer and they delivered like this great kind of value. It's going to be more like, okay, you know, I tried to call, I don't want to pick on anyone particularly, but uh, yeah, having them optimize that experience is going to be tricky because that's not their core business. And then the other part of it is fraud, which is like, you know, it, it's much simpler when you do FinTech and you do it very kind of specific to an audience that you understand and you optimize for that because you can, much more significantly reduce fraud, right? Uh, and fraud is this like hidden cost that permeates all of fintech. Uh, but for example, with us, when we have a VC-funded startup on our platform, there's basically been zero cases of fraud from that. Uh, where, whereas when someone signs up with a Gmail address from internet, you know, they don't have, have like a good LinkedIn 
uh, or any sort of like web presence, uh, we're much, much more likely to get fraud. And, you know, we have built a bunch of systems to like figure out who is likely to do it and like have restrictions and all of this kind of stuff. Uh, and yeah, I think these like systems that are not dedicated, I just don't think actually do that good a job with that. Um, so yeah, I think it's interesting. Like there's there's things that are like more natural bundles, and you know, Wealthfront having like a high interest savings account was a much more natural bundle because it was already about like saving money. Whereas other things I think are like unnatural bundles, and I don't think they will do well. Yeah, I, I like the way you frame that actually because that's you know whenever I whenever I see these other products, I think in the context of that product, it's a nice add-on or it makes um, it it furthers the cause for either increased convenience, right, or, or stickiness or so but it doesn't replace a core, a core banking experience, right? And so I think the convergence of banking in some sense, the conversation often is misplaced, which is, I think there is convergence of banking and kind of convergence of FinTech, you know, in these companies, because ultimately at the end of the day, a lot of these services you use, you know, you facilitate payment, right? And so it certainly makes payment easier, makes a part of the process easier, but doesn't replace kind of the core phenomenon of, of banking itself. Um, I'm, I'm curious as, and I, and I ask most operators, you know, this, this question when I have them on the podcast, which is, you know, what's the, so you've, you know, you've raised a, a good amount of money, you've raised over $25 million and, and your, you know, your funding round was uh, a little bit unique as well from the perspective of, you know, how many, uh, of course you have lead investors in Andreessen Horowitz and, uh, and folks, but you, you also have quite a number of, you know, individual investors. And so I'm sure in, you know, in having many of those conversations, uh, you know, many folks said yes, many folks might've said no. And, and many folks, of course, you know, I'm sure had great dialogue with you. I, I always ask this to operators, which is what's the biggest, you know, challenge for your business and what's the best objection. Actually, I should frame it differently. What's the best objection you've heard, you know, in your conversations as to why someone believes mercury won't work? And, you know, obviously you're compelled and you're working on, on the company. So how do you answer that objection? Uh, there's no good objections. <laughs> no. Uh, I think one thing that like confuses people and it's often like a little tricky for me to answer as well uh, is, you know, what's the magic um, feature or something like that. Like if you look at a lot of other fintech companies, there's like a magic kind of hook. Uh, yeah, Robin, the most obvious, like, we'll give you free uh, free trading, whereas before Robinhood, you'd have to pay, like, $10 or something to trade a stock. Uh, so, yeah, the, I guess, like, with fintech especially, and this isn't true for other, other um, startup industries, but fintech especially, everyone's always looking for this, like, what's the magic kind of hook? What's the magic source kind of thing? And Mercury doesn't necessarily have that, right? Uh, I think there's a... Yeah, what we think about it is like it's more like kind of Zoom or Superhuman or yeah. There's a bunch of products that like often you can't like name that one thing that's better about them than everything else. It's a combination of kind of features and a great experience that they deliver, and that's how we think about it. But but I do come you know that question does come up, and I'm often like stumped about it in that like I don't necessarily have like a good answer. I'm not like hey, here's the magic sauce like you know, you got it kind of thing. I, I think a part of it, like, it is nice if you can like simplify something down, right? Like we do this thing and it's just like, you know, it's the thing that we sell and that's what we market. Whereas like everybody markets like a broader, like banks suck, we're much better. <laughs> uh, and yeah, I think that actually gets people hung up uh, and it's probably like the biggest thing that gets people hung up, uh, at least in my 
you know, in those Series A pitches that I was doing, and I, I don't, I don't much of a better answer. Like, you know, the better that Zoom does, the easier my answer gets. I'm like, look at Zoom, <laughs> but, but, uh, but you know, that's not always like that satisfying. <laughs> well, it's interesting because so I had, a, I had a pretty bad experience actually with the with the bank today, where my wife and I are closing on a new place and, and kind of securing up a mortgage. Um, and I thought about our, you know, us having our conversation later today. I thought it was so ironic, but I think that framing is right, which is there's distinct portions of the banking experience um, that are personally terrible, right? And when you, I can't think of an instance which would be, you know, in in this particular conversation I was having today, if there was just a solution for that conversation, you know, that's not a standalone product necessarily, or the frequency of that is not is not enough, right? But if I look across kind of the entire experience of banking itself, you know, there's all these kind of nits and nuances, right? So whether it's transparency around fees, whether it's uh, efficiency, whether it's the challenge of sending funds or receiving funds, you know, of a certain, you know, of a certain large amount, even when those funds are just in different accounts and banks, right? Does the mortgage department talk to the to the checking account, savings account department, right? So I, I, I buy that. I buy that thesis, and and I I buy your thesis also on kind of the acceleration of how this is how the world is going to be, you know, changing more and more towards this experience. I'm I'm curious as to uh, the effect that COVID has had on the business. Um, it's an interesting time, you know, when you look at the tailwinds of a lot of offline to online growth and a lot of offline to online movement in general. How has the business been during this time frame, um, and what's the impact it's had, you know, from from the perspective of building a bank? Yeah, good question. Um, you know, I think there's there's tailwinds and headwinds, and I don't think this, uh, yeah, the COVID fueled recession is like in any way over. Like, I think it's just starting, right? So, uh, what we have seen is, yeah. In my opinion, it was always crazy that you had to go into a bank to make a bank account, uh, to go to a bank branch. Uh, now, you know, Mercury is one of the few ways you can just make a bank account online and it's easy and it's painless. Uh, so that was already happening. And we've definitely seen like a larger percentage of people, which is someone who works at Chase was like, I can't set up a Chase bank account right now. Can I just do a Mercury one? I was like, sure. Uh, so uh, that's one change that like, you know, we were just, we were already sitting on on that trend and like uh, COVID has accelerated it. Uh, another thing that's like on the positive side is we did have a lot of kind of e- e-commerce companies using Mercury, uh, but e-commerce and D2C kind of com- companies using it. And that's obviously kind of completely blown up um, where, yeah, if you look at most of the stats, like e-commerce is up like 90% uh, compared to just two months ago or something insane like that. So we've seen a lot of growth there. Uh, startup ecosystem, I think it's it's interesting. We're not quite sure how it's going. I think funding, at least from my perspective, seemed like funding did slow down quite a bit uh, for the startup ecosystem kind of uh, end of March to uh, April. But I feel like May, things are normalizing again. Uh, yeah, it's not. It's super hard to tell. Like, what are the macroeconomic changes, right? Like, how is this going to play out? Uh, and we are, in some ways, we're like a, yeah. At least our startup side is like a reflection of the startup ecosystem. I mean, we don't fully rely on the growth of the ecosystem because we're obviously still a smallish percentage of like all the startup banking. Uh, but that's that's yeah, you know, that's like a tailwind for us. As as we round out the conversation, Ahmad, um. I'm curious as to how you think and and whether it's COVID inspired or not, but you know, at a at a broader level, 
how do you fundamentally think you know about the the future of banking what are what are the what are the pieces that you feel that most folks especially from a consumer's perspective you know eventual consumers you know might maybe not the early adopters today but you know adopters in the next 3 years 5 years 10 years what do you think the bis- biggest misconceptions are around uh, banking generally and in, in building a new bank and what are the fundamental behavior changes you see just fundamentally changing you know to make a company like mercury successful yeah i think the you know the tricky part is banking and putting your money somewhere just involves a lot of trust right like there's a uh, you know one of the things that we're selling which is like subtle is like do you trust us to kind of handle your money and over t- over time banks have kind of eroded trust in them right uh like you know i don't I haven't read like stats on it, but I'm guessing most people just don't trust these big banks. Uh, and like whether that was the financial crisis that cemented that or the things. And that, that's what's actually opened up the possibility of even having a startup bank, right? Like like maybe 10 years ago, a startup bank would have just sounded wrong, <laughs> right? Like it's like, why would I put my money in a startup? Uh, whereas uh, that's the shift that's going on in some kind of, abstract way where like people are willing to trust this new entity because a they don't trust banks that much uh b there's this kind of you know relatively new thing in the u.s where there's this partner bank landscape where you know mercury is not a bank itself we work with the fdic insured partner bank so you know we can actually kind of have a little bit of everything right like we can have the trust of a of the existing legacy fdic insured kind of banking system while at the same time have the trust of the fact that like we're a product-driven, transparent, low-fee bank. Uh, and that kind of like this kind of dual, dual trust thing is like this interesting kind, of, uh, interesting kind of game that's being played out that's like a little bit under the covers, but like I do think it's like a very important part of like why uh, challenger banks are succeeding. Um, so that's, that's kind of like, you know, looking at consumer conceptions, I think that's the people that are, you know, at all like laggards in the space if they're you know word laggard but you know not the early adopters just as the main reason I, I don't think anyone thinks what a great banking experience i'm getting from these other banks it's much more to do with okay can i trust this new thing uh, and it's just yeah you know, it's a often hassle and you know these things are sticky for a good reason uh but you know that's it's changing over time and i think i think trust is something you win over time right like as you the bigger companies we work with and the longer we're around, we just build that trust. No, I, it makes, it makes a ton of sense. And I'm, I'm interested to see that from afar, you know, the, the journey and certainly hopefully to be a, you know, a customer soon to be, um, Imad, this is, this is great. Thanks so much for taking the time. You know, you guys are solving a, a really big problem and excited to continue to, you know, witness the growth of Mercury. So thanks again, really appreciate you taking the time to come on. Yeah. I heard you're running a business. You should definitely be using Mercury. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, good speaking to you, Ramin.